Many have called the coronavirus pandemic unprecedented, but some historians disagree, putting the disease into a larger context that helps us understand what comes next. There's no better person to talk to about this than Neil Ferguson, a prolific scholar with both sweeping knowledge and an eye on the latest news. Ferguson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, a think tank based at Stanford University. He writes for the Boston Globe and the Sunday Times of London and has authored 15 books. In this episode of Influencers, I speak to Neil Ferguson about how the world has responded to the pandemic and what the past can teach us about what lies ahead. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Neil Ferguson, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Neil, great to see you. Good to be with you, Andy. So looks like you're out and about a little bit. Where are we talking to you from? I'm in Montana, uh, where uh, we have a place, and I've been here for nine weeks because when I divined that something wicked this way was coming, I decided we should get out of the San Francisco Bay Area where we usually are based, uh, thinking that it could be as badly affected as New York. It hasn't been, but uh, that made me think, hmm, social distancing, where where can I best do social distancing? The answer is Montana, which uh, of course is very low uh, population density and a culture which is pretty socially distanced. So that's why I'm here and uh, sitting in the bunk room, not in some fancy professorial library. Um, I'm really at my my holiday home. Great, great. So let's talk about the coronavirus. And I guess let's start off by thinking about where we are right now. Where do things stand? How do you see it, Neil? Well, I'm an historian, not to be confused with another Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist in London who made himself quite unpopular with some very dire uh, projections back in March. And as an historian, I can say with some confidence that we are at a relatively early stage of this pandemic. Typically, pandemics uh, are multi-year events, uh, two years, maybe more. Uh, the great 1918-19 influenza pandemic came in three waves. Uh, the 1957-58 influenza pandemic which was less deadly, but also global, uh, that also came in waves. So this is early. We, we've only really been talking about a pandemic since, I guess, February. I think it only sank in that we had a problem in the United States in mid-March. And here we are in, in May. So one thing that epidemiologists, I think, have got wrong in this crisis is that they've encouraged people to think that there's just one curve you have to flatten, but it's never one and done with a pandemic, especially because at this point, relatively small proportions of most populations have been exposed to the virus. So we're nowhere close to what they call herd immunity. Uh, and that means that as soon as you normalize behavior uh, and lockdowns, uh, encourage people to go back to work and indeed to go back to uh, shops and, and restaurants, you will get more infections. That's just certain. The only question is, 
how quickly, how big will the second wave be? So we have a lot that we still don't know. And I haven't even mentioned the kind of uncertainty that hovers over the southern hemisphere, very populous countries still at a relatively early stage with no sign of flattening curves. Think of Brazil, for example, or African countries. So it's it's early days, I'm afraid. You know, Bill Gates said something that I found kind of striking, Neil, and he said this was the most dramatic event of his lifetime. Would you agree with that? Yes I, and no. I think that if I uh, look back over my 56 years, it was probably more consequential that in my lifetime, uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, and in my lifetime, uh, the Chinese Communist Party avoided that fate by reinventing uh, their economic policies and becoming the second largest economy in the world. By comparison, uh, this pandemic, uh, although it's certainly uh, surprising to our generation, wouldn't have surprised uh, previous generations very much because it's not nearly as big uh, a disaster as the 1918-19 pandemic. And it's probably going to be, in the end, about as lethal as the 1957-58 pandemic, which nobody now remembers or, or talks about. Why is that? That's a really interesting question. And I think the answer is that our economic reaction, our policy reaction to this virus has been so disruptive, uh, so very different from the reaction of the Eisenhower administration and its contemporaries in 1957. They didn't do lockdowns. They didn't, didn't even shut the schools. They accepted that there would be excess deaths because they were accustomed to excess deaths. They'd been through World War II and the Korean War, after all. So I think what makes this seem dramatic to, to Bill Gates is partly that uh, baby boomers are not very good at remembering the disasters that befell their parents. Um, and also that we've we've really made things much, much worse with some very ill-judged policy responses, which I'll sum up as follows. We dithered around in January, February, when we should have been taking decisive action, as they did in countries like Taiwan and South Korea. And then we freaked out in mid-March when it was much too late to contain the the virus has spread and adopted policies, which I think we'd sort of copied from mainland China, particularly Hubei province. We shut down really large parts of our economy. So we've inflicted on ourselves a very much bigger economic shock than I believe the public health emergency warranted. And we've end up, ended up with the worst of both worlds. We haven't succeeded in containing the virus. In the United States, there only are four states, four that really have this under control. Happily, I'm in one of them, Montana, the other three, Hawaii, Alaska, and Vermont. In no other state can it be said that this thing is really fully under control, and in a significant number, the curve isn't even flattening. So we, we've ended up not containing the spread of the virus, and at the same time, inflicting huge economic damage on ourselves, as illustrated by soaring unemployment that could get to Great Depression levels. Uh, it's perfectly plausible, in my view, that the unemployment rate in the United States could reach 26% at peak. That is higher than in the very depths of the Great Depression. So I think the real drama here lies 
Not in the virus itself, because I don't think in historical terms this is a big one. In fact, it ranks, I, I think, somewhere like 36th in all pandemics so far in terms of its its mortality uh, impact. I think the real story here is a massive policy screw up, which is going to have all kinds of unintended consequences that will be far greater in their social impact than the than the pandemic itself. You know, just to be clear, are, are you suggesting that maybe we've gone too far in terms of this trade-off that we always hear about, uh, saving lives versus damaging the economy? I mean, should we open the economy up more, understanding that more people will die? Well, this this trade-off has been repeatedly oversimplified uh, with, I think, a very negative result that anybody who argues that we've overreacted is accused of wanting people to die. And this is a really stupid way to have a discussion about something like this. First of all, um, epidemiologists like Larry Brilliant have said for years that the key in any pandemic is early detection and early response. And it wasn't a hidden truth that the way to cope in 2020 with the new coronavirus was with very rapid rolling out of testing and contact tracing. That's what they did in Taiwan. They did it in South Korea too. They did it with rather less success in Singapore. And in those countries, the number of people infected and the number of people who died, um, these numbers have been quite small. In fact, in Taiwan, it's in single digits, the total fatalities. And they didn't need to shut down their economies because they got it right. We got it wrong because we dithered around. In January, I wrote columns uh, in the Boston Globe uh, and elsewhere pointing out that we had a problem and uh, that a pandemic was very likely coming because everything that I was hearing from Wuhan was a, a red flag to my historian's mind. And it was impossible to get anybody to pay attention. At the World Economic Forum in January, I was treated as an eccentric when I said, this is a much bigger deal than climate change. Uh, when I went to Washington in February for a Hoover Institution meeting, I had the greatest difficulty getting people in the administration to acknowledge that they had to stop saying it was just the flu and it probably wouldn't affect the United States because it was so obvious that it was going to hit the United States very hard. The United States is as connected to China in terms of, of transportation and, and communications as anywhere in the world, despite the relatively large geographical distance. So it was maddening to find nobody responding with the urgency that was needed, despite the fact that on paper we have a an elaborate system of biodefense and the whole subsections uh, of the Department of Health and Human Services, whose one job this is. So that's the first point. But the second point is we need to draw a distinction between social distancing and lockdowns. But social distancing is part of a targeted and rational response to a contagious disease whose exact properties we're still learning about, but it certainly kills people. Locking down an economy is a much more blunt instrument because you're basically saying to everybody, 
stop right there and stay at home, regardless of your age, regardless of the role you play, regardless of how many contacts you have in a typical day. So that's a very, very crude way of dealing with this problem. And it's also extremely costly. So we didn't have a choice between doing nothing and letting lots of people die and shutting down the economy and letting the economy collapse. That's a false choice. The choice was between smart policies that would have contained the spread of the virus if they had been done early enough and would have avoided uh, the, the, the economic crash and dumb policies, which I'm afraid we've adopted. And we're not alone in this, if, if it's any consolation. The United Kingdom and actually most European countries have been about as stupid in the way that they've dealt with this problem. And, and we still need to ask the question why that was, because as I said on paper, Countries like the US and the UK were very well prepared for a pandemic. It was just that when one came along, we completely failed. Well, so then is that President Trump's fault, Neil? I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think he's covered himself in glory, to put it mildly. But the president isn't really supposed to micromanage our response to a, a predictable event like a pandemic. And I want to stress that it was very predictable that at some point there would be a coronavirus that would be highly contagious as well as lethal. The earlier iterations like SARS and MERS were pretty deadly. And uh, the onset of symptoms was so rapid that they never went global. But lots of people, not just Bill Gates, not just Larry Brilliant, the list is long of people who wrote uh, and spoke about this risk. I even wrote about it myself in a book called The Great Degeneration several years ago. So this was not a black swan unless you were completely not paying attention uh, to a great many uh, intellectual and, and other contributions uh, on the subject. Why was it then? that the, the 36 page 2018 uh, biodefense strategy of the US federal government failed. Why was it that DHHS, which has as its responsibility biodefense, failed? Why did CDC not have anything like enough testing capacity, even in March? And those are really not questions that I think can be addressed to President Trump. Yeah, sure, the buck stops with the president. But let's face it, in a thing as large and complex as the federal government, there is ultimately such a thing as departmental responsibility. And it, it's the, the failure of the bureaucracy that to me is the really striking feature here in just the same way that you can't say Britain had a very bad pandemic because Boris Johnson's a, a populist. That, that's not the right way of thinking about it. There were lots of people, including eminent epidemiologists, on the government payroll whose job it was to say, this is a dangerous uh, new outbreak, we need to act rapidly. And instead, I think what happened was that the experts on both sides of the Atlantic were prepared for another influenza pandemic. Remember, we'd had one in 2009, so-called swine flu, and it hadn't killed many people, though it had been very contagious. And I think the experts were sort of waiting for the next influenza, and they hadn't learned the lessons of SARS and MERS, and they hadn't understood that a coronavirus could actually be far more disruptive than, than a new strain of influenza. Mm. So what is our world going to look like, say, two years hence, Neil, maybe when this thing has started to wind down? Um, are we going to get a vaccine and it's in the rearview mirror? And what are the permanent implications? 
Well, as an historian, I know that there's there's one past. Uh, we can argue about it, but there's only the one. But there are multiple plausible futures. And uh, I'll give you a couple. In the nice future, uh, a vaccine is, is found relatively soon. There are 70, maybe 100 different efforts underway to find one. And I'm no expert on virology. It seems that there's a reasonable chance of success, but let's just stress reasonable chance, not certainty. But let's let's look at a nice future where this happens. Somebody has a breakthrough, uh, and then in the course of of next year, this vaccine becomes widely available. Maybe also there are some therapies uh, that come uh, online that uh, that help people who get who get sick. And let's add some more good news. It turns out that as we'd initially thought, the people who are most at risk are the elderly, and it doesn't really harm young people, even if they get it. Uh, so let's assume that kind of good news happens. And, and let's also assume that people on hearing that good news say, phew, panic over, we can start getting back uh, to our normal lives, except maybe for you, granddad. Um, and so we we get a kind of V-shaped recovery as people not only go back to work, but they start going back to consuming. Now, in that scenario, uh, by this time next year, we won't be probably over this, but we'll certainly feel that the end is near and that we won't be uh, dealing with many of the problems that we've been through uh, in 2022, because by that time, the vaccine will be widely available. So that's future one, the nice future. Future two uh, is, a, is also important to consider, because first of all, we might not get a vaccine. There's no vaccine for HIV. They've been hunting for one for years. Uh, even tuberculosis, which has been around for a very long time, it's very difficult to vaccinate against the there's one vaccine, but it's not at all uh, reliable. So the, the possibility exists that we don't get a, a vaccine. Uh, the possibility also exists that we don't get really effective therapies. And then the possibility also exists that it turns out that it does actually hurt people who are under the age of 60 in ways that we're only just beginning to divine. Now, in that scenario, uh, we don't have a post-COVID-19 era. We have uh, a, an era with COVID-19 because it goes from pandemic to endemic. We get to live with it, much as we've had to learn to live with HIV AIDS. And I, I would argue that this is, in that scenario, to social life, what HIV AIDS was to sexual life. It will require permanent changes of behavior, and we will find it difficult to make those changes. So I think in that second future, the, the bad future, the economic recovery is going to be anything but V-shaped because people will remain risk averse. They'll be reluctant to go out and be in crowds of any sort at all. They'll also be afraid, uh, nervous even of interactions with their neighbors. And under those conditions, I think we'll be in a depression. We, we're already pretty much in one in terms of basic economic measures. The key thing about depression economics is that you can get into it very fast, but you emerge from it very slowly, even with massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, even with the measures that we're taking, which are obviously very different from the measures of the 1930s. I think we need to contemplate that second nasty scenario because you certainly cannot attach a 0% probability to it. Yeah, and it, it's sort of maybe the 
The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And given that, what should governments do, particularly the U.S. government, Neil? Well, I think the short-term imperative must be to move away from the blunt instrument of lockdowns to a smart system of social distancing that reduces the risk of spread, uh, quarantining or isolating those people who are, are most vulnerable, that's the elderly, and making sure that places like old folks' homes are not death camps because of uh, I'm afraid they have been uh, in many parts of the world in the last uh, month or so. Uh, we can, now that we have a much larger, higher level of testing, do a lot more testing. And the key thing is that we need to accompany that with contact tracing. And we're not anywhere near being able to do that for reasons that are actually quite mysterious. Uh, when you consider that the US is a leader in technology, and the big tech companies have all the data about your and my social networks that anybody could wish for. I think there's a big puzzle here. If you don't have contact tracing, if you just test people, you're not going to be able efficiently to, to contain new outbreaks because people are asymptomatic for some days after they get infected. Indeed, some people stay asymptomatic. So just knowing that person X tests positive doesn't really get you very far. You need to know the people that person X has been with over the preceding week, at least. So I, I think that's where we should be going. And we're not going there nearly fast enough, partly, I think, because of a false perception that it's too late for that, that too many people now have it, that contact tracing is just beyond the capacities, which is wrong. I, I mean, it's quite clearly wrong. We, we can easily uh, graph the networks of every individual in the United States, thanks to smartphones and uh, the data trail that we leave. Then there's this second objection that it's going to violate privacy and create Big Brother, a surveillance state, which again is, a, I think, a weak argument. In an emergency, of course, you're going to circumscribe individual freedom. We already did it. We just told everybody they couldn't leave their homes. How much more of a limitation on liberty do you want? Uh, the, the lesson from Taiwan is you can have this kind of technology without compromising privacy, and you can limit the use that, that is made of the, the data. So there's a smart way forward. Uh, we can finally learn from the countries that got this right. But what frustrates me is that I just don't see it happening. What we're doing instead is allowing individual states to decide when they can relax uh, restrictions. Uh, and Ultimately, most of the states that are doing that, like Georgia, for example, don't have any real capacity for testing and contact tracing. That means that we end up playing whack-a-mole with the blindfold on. I mean, whack-a-mole is difficult. I tried at a fun fair not so long ago. Whack-a-mole with the blindfold on, you're going to lose. And so I think that's the problem. We, we are going about this even now uh, in mid-May the wrong way. And we need a radical rethink. Uh, because if we don't quickly change our strategy, the economic harm that we're doing is going to be irreparable because more and more business is just going to give up the ghost, going to go insolvent, no matter how many checks they get sent by the government. Is there something, Neil, about the American way, our federalist system, the rights of the individual that doesn't lend itself very well to coping with this problem? 
I don't want to draw that conclusion because I think the United States uh, at its best has in fact coped well with all kinds of disasters. Uh, usually, of course, there's confusion and chaos in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. That That's par for the course. Think Pearl Harbor, think 9-11. But I think if you go back and look at mid-20th century America and the way that it dealt with the succession of, of very big disasters, the Great Depression, uh, World War II, the Korean War, and then the 1957-58 pandemic that everybody's forgotten, it's impossible not to conclude that uh, we've got worse at this, that uh, the government, the federal government in the days of, uh, of Dwight Eisenhower could build interstate highways, fight the Cold War, contain the Soviet Union, uh, manage a pandemic, and balance the budget. So my conclusion is no, we, we are not congenitally as Americans incapable of dealing with disasters. We have got worse at it. And paradoxically, we've got worse at it the bigger government has got. We have this enormous bloated federal administrative state with about 67 different agencies. At least three or four of them had their own pandemic biodefense plans. If you start reading through the literature on this from the last few years, it's overwhelming because there are so many plans. There are statutory instruments. There's endless PowerPoint decks that you can go through. So the administrative state is very, very good at generating paper or, or PowerPoint. But when the actual emergency happens, the bureaucracy fails completely. And it's not just the bureaucracy. I think we've got worse even in our media coverage. I think the coverage by the media of this crisis has been lamentable, partly because of the endless focus on President Trump and his decision making. Uh, there's been a complete neglect of that failure that I'm talking about at the level of the bureaucracy that was responsible for biodefense. And hardly anything has been written about that. Nobody's really asking the right questions about China. It's amazing to me how poor the coverage has been of what happened in Wuhan in December and in January. I find myself having to do research that I would expect professional journalists to be doing on, for example, the question of just how many people left Wuhan during the period when the contagion was going global. And let me add one more indictment. I think academic America has done much, much less well than it should have in the face of this crisis. All credit to the people working away in laboratories, analyzing the virus, trying to find a vaccine. They're doing an awesome job. But when I look at other parts of the academy, I do wonder what contribution exactly they've made. And uh, I, I just remember thinking, oh, God help us, when early on in the crisis, uh, there was a complaint uh, that was widely uh, echoed in academia, that the Trump task force on what was then called the coronavirus was all male and all white, that they hadn't done their diversity due diligence. And you find yourself thinking, is that really our top priority in the face of a lethal virus to make sure that we have diversity on the task force? You know, that's something that has spread outwards from academia. And while I'm all in favor of, uh, of gender and racial equality, there are times when you shouldn't be focused on that one issue, just in the same way that the World Economic Forum could have spent some time talking about a pandemic rather than about climate change back in January when it was already clear that a pandemic was coming. Well, I'm glad to hear, uh, by the way, Neil, that you don't think it's congenital. And I thought you were going to uh, go back to that um, 
perhaps apocryphal Churchillism about Americans can be trusted to do the right thing once they've exhausted all of their possibilities. Um, I've quoted I've quoted that line often enough in my in my work to to uh, to acknowledge that there is a pattern here. Uh, but but if you go back through the history of the United States, what's striking to me is this recent deterioration in the quality of our institutional performance. I wrote a book about this called The Great Degeneration uh, nearly 10 years ago now, saying that when I looked at our public finances, when I looked at our red tape administrative state, when I looked at the way the legal system performed, and when I looked at the educational system, all these things seemed to me to be failing relative to their historically quite high standards. So I think we have to, instead of saying, oh, we're Americans, we'll always mess this stuff up, we need to start admitting that, in fact, we've got a lot worse at dealing with disasters than we used to be. Let me ask you about that. And really, last question here, Neil. You're from the UK. You decided to move to the United States. Why? And <laughs> regret doing so? I've never regretted it. I became a, a U.S. citizen two years ago now, uh, but I've lived and worked in the United States since 2002 when I moved from Oxford to New York University. I had a couple of motivations uh, for doing that. One was a sense that the United States was more interested in the work I was doing on financial history and than, than the U.K. was, and uh, Harvard and uh, and Stanford just seemed to be more exciting places to do that kind of work uh, than Oxford and Cambridge were at that time. Uh, there are personal reasons too. I, I think if if I'm honest as a Scotsman, I, I've always felt more at home in the United States than in England. It's a funny thing, but I grew up in Glasgow watching John Wayne films and uh, there is this kind of strange affinity that the Scots have uh, with North America generally. But But it's partly for that reason that I'd reached that point in my life by the end of the 1990s that I was either going to stay in Oxford and, and gradually stagnate or challenge myself by coming to, to the United States. So, no, it's been a tremendously good decision because ever since I set foot here and started to work, I've, I've been bombarded by some of the big questions of our time. Is American power bound to decline and fall? That's a central question as, as it was when I arrived. It's still the central question today of, of geopolitics. Is it inevitable that the financial system will generate huge crises? That was something I grappled with in a book called The Ascent of Money more than 10 years ago now. And uh, the, the discussion that we're having, you know, can the United States reform itself so that its institutions don't fail in the face of a crisis. That seems like one of the most important questions that we can really address. Now, I could have stayed and asked those questions about the UK, but let's face it, the stakes are just so much higher because if the US fails, then the whole Western project, the project of Western civilization that I've spent so much of my life studying is over. And I'm here in my own small way to try to stop that. Neil Ferguson coming to us from a bunkhouse in Montana. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.